Welcome to Paul's Podcast Diary, your weekly glimpse into the life of indie author Paul Teague. Find out how many words got written over the past seven days, hear what's on the planning board, and discover the tips and tools which Paul is using to self-publish his books and get them selling as fast as possible. This is Paul's Podcast Diary, and here's your show host, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Paul's Podcast Diary, episode number 125 for Saturday the 3rd of November, 2018. And now the interview episodes and the podcast diary episodes have levelled up. I'm on episode 125 of the interviews, episode 125 of the diaries, which makes this the 250th episode of the podcast, which feels quite remarkable because when I started the podcast, I hadn't got a clue that would make it this far. 250 episodes. So that feels like quite a momentous occasion. I'm going to do a brief diary this week then we're going to play a little jingle and then we're going to go into quite a long section I think it's over an hour actually of me talking about my journey from the very first writing I ever did as a kid to the publication or the self-publication of my first book so it's a little bit of a mixed diary today just to mark that 250th episode so let's start with general news first of all I mentioned just on a throwaway tweet a week or two ago that I have something called the... And I, I share as much as I can with you in these diaries, but sometimes I just forget stuff. I just do it uh, routinely, and I just forget to mention it to you. And one of the things I've done for quite a while is, is I've used Trello, which is T-R-E-L-L-O, Trello, which is essentially a project management software. But I use it as what I call my ideas machine. Now, I got this idea from a guy called James Altucher, who's a kind of mindset, uh, businessy, cryptocurrency guy. Uh, who you may have heard of, uh, and I followed him for a while. I, I like his stuff. Uh, he's also a self-publisher, by the way, a very successful non-fiction self-publisher, so, uh, shifts a lot of books. But he had this idea, he's got this concept that to that creativity is a muscle and that you should be you, you should write down 10 ideas, however ridiculous they are, 10 ideas a day, um, to just get used to being creative. So he, he, he thinks creativity is a muscle that needs to be exercised. And I really like this idea. I totally agree with him. I think the more you know, creative you are, the more creative ideas you have. So um, I don't write 10 ideas down a day, but I opened a, a Trello board, what's called a Trello board, which is essentially a place where I can record my ideas. And I call it the idea machine. I may have nicked that from James. I can't remember, but that's what I call it, the idea machine. And I, whenever I have a crazy idea for a story or whatever it is, I put it into a Trello board in my idea machine and it just sits there. And then when I'm thinking about books, when, I've, when I'm in between projects and I'm thinking about what I'm going to write next, I always look inside the idea machine just to see what crazy ideas I've put in there and to see if anything fires any anything anything creative in me. And, and often I've come into that idea machine and the time has been right to develop a particular idea that I've put in there. So anyhow, the other day I was just putting a new idea in there. I can't even remember what it was, one of my crazy ideas. And I just took a screenshot of it. And, and obviously because it's a crazy idea machine, I, I, I blurred it. I don't want people seeing all my crazy ideas because there's a real, there's some really offbeat stuff in there. Um, but the, that's the whole point is that you do it uninhibited. No one's going to see it. Just put anything in there. Um, total unbridled creativity. And I posted this and it, it sort of got, 
in a small way, just a nice reaction. And uh, Craig Lee Gordon, who's been on this podcast before, I interviewed him on the podcast, Craig Lee Gordon. Uh, Craig responded to say, snap. And Craig also does this. He puts all his story ideas in there. He's got his to-do lists in there, uh, release schedules. He uses Trello for absolutely everything. And Craig posted a screenshot of his Trello board. And if you thought my Trello board was crazy, you should see Craig, he uses it big time. And so I thought I must mention this on the diary because a Trello board, T-R-E-L-L-O, it's free. You can pay for it, but it's free. Um, it's just a great way of organising and storing your ideas long term. And it was great to see that Craig's using it. And, and wow, you know, if you think I was using it a lot, have a look at what Craig's doing. I'll put the screenshot on this week's show notes. Um, but it just struck me that it's a really good tool that I need to share. I've told you that I've been doing Google Ads because I've been banned by Facebook. I'm having to try other things. And I just wanted to report back on this in a, in a general way. So the Google Ads, um, in, in terms of, I've spent about £230 on them at the moment. Um, and I've been sending people to my Payhip page where I'm selling my own books through Payhip. I've sent them directly to the USA and the UK box set for Don't Sell Meg. And I've created my own web page. Now, what I'm going to tell you is, is I'm getting a lot of traffic. It's cheap, so it's 8 to, to 11 pence I'm getting the clicks for. But I'm doing virtually no business from that. And I, I made a, uh, so no sales that I could really detect from it. But lots and lots of traffic. So what that makes me think is, right, okay, so the traffic is targeted. They like the ads. They're clicking on the ads, but they're not taking action. So when, when I, So there's lots of traffic. The traffic is at a price that's good but I'm not doing anything. So what that then tells me is that the the expectation is wrong. Whatever I, I'm setting them up for something, and when they're clicking and they're looking at what whatever page I'm taking them to, that's clearly not resonating, they're not buying, they're not taking action. So what I did this week, um, so the traffic's good, the keywords are good, the targeted keywords, the cost is good, but I'm not, the conversion is rubbish, is, is a pile of pants, uh, which is my fault because I'm whatever page I'm sending them to is not right. So what I've done is I've pivoted now, and I'm what I'm trying now is sending the same amount of traffic to a page that I've created, but it's free. So it's Don't Tell Meg free, because I know that many, many people, enough people who read Don't Tell Meg go on to buy the, the other two, which is where I make my money. So I'm now trying it as, as a loss leader to see if I send people through the first book. Now, it's too early days for me to report back for that just yet, but I just wanted to let you know where I'm going with that. But I still feel I'm going to spend some money on this because I really want to, I either want to exhaust it and say, I can't make this work um, or I want to make it work. So I'm happy to spend another couple of hundred on this if I have to. Um, but my feeling is, is if the traffic's there, the traffic's targeted by keyword and the cost is good. So if the cost is, is fine. It's a matter of conversion. It's a matter of matching the offer to the conversion. So I'm going to be playing around with that a little bit more to see whether I can make that work. So I'll keep giving you updates on this and just let you know how it goes and whether we make a breakthrough. Something I'm very pleased about this week, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll have seen this and, and on Facebook. Um, Simon Magus, who is the guy who read my Secret Bunker books, he went to the Secret Bunker, loved the bunker, loved the books, and he's now creating this music audio version. He's given me some files and some photos that I can now share with you. And I've started to post these in a small way. I've started to post them. I've, I'm posting slightly more uh, in the Patreon account. But you'll start to see these things coming out on social media now. I don't want to 
I don't want to overwhelm you with them, so I'll, I'll drip, drip, drip them. But basically, every book in the series has got its own theme music, and Simon's also started to create sound effects. And then what he's aiming to do is to get actors to dramatise bits of the book, and then he'll drop these um, sound effects in on them. Now, the other thing is, is that the, the secret bunker, with half-term just finished, the secret bunker sort of closes its doors um, for daytime opening for the winter season. And when it opens next season, which is usually, I think it's usually sort of around Easter time, if I remember rightly, basically where the tourist season gets going, that is going to be the 25th year of it opening as a tourist attraction. So there's obviously quite a good little opportunity there. for if, you know, if Simon has his audio done, I might consider um, getting my covers updated to say 25th anniversary edition or something like that, because there's quite a nice little sales opportunity there. So that's begun to get me thinking. Now, Simon's very shy about this stuff. Simon Magus is not his proper name. He's not his real name. Uh, he's not on the internet, so there's no link I can send you to. And he, he doesn't want to appear in photographs. So he's, he's like a reclusive artist. Um, he decide, describes himself as a struggling artist. And I'm saying, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to take him to the dark side by saying, you know, come on, you've got to get a CD of this produced and put this in the bunker and sell it in the bunker shop. Because my book there, my book sells all through the summer. And if he's got his CD there, presumably people will buy the two of them. So I, I'm trying to bring him to the dark side of sales with this. And, uh, you know, I appreciate not everybody wants to be Mr. or Mrs. Showbiz. But he's put a lot of effort into this. Um, but I've started sharing it on social media and I will share bits of it so you can get a feel for it. Now, you know, I appreciate it's not going to be everybody's thing. Simon's influences are exactly the same as mine. He likes Space 1999, Jerry Anderson science fiction. We like the same kind of science fiction. And it's very much what he's doing. He's very much um, stereophonics, BBC Stereophonics Workshop, circa sort of, you know, 1970s, that kind of thing. Though the theme music for The Secret Bunker, book one, feels to me just like something like Jean-Michel Jarre would write in the 80s. It's, re it's really cool. So, um, you know, clearly you could give this book different treatments. But if, if this was, if somebody was turning this into a BBC series in the 1970s, early 80s, this is the kind of music and the sound effects that it would have. If you were doing it now as a modern blockbuster, clearly it would be completely up-teched and, and be, be very, very different. But I'm sort of happy with all iterations. It's like Shakespeare, isn't it? That you could do Shakespeare, you could do a version of, um, you know, Romeo and Juliet, for instance. That's a good example, isn't it? You can either do it as Shakespeare meant to do it, or you could put it into a modern day setting. Um, and, and they all work really well. And that's how I view this. This is a kind of 70s, early 80s treatment of the secret bunker. But, you know, I'm, I'm loving it. But I'll, I'll continue to share as much of that stuff as, as Simon gives me. But um, I, I'm, you know, delighted with it. I'm really happy that he's doing it. And he's he's so um, sort of true to uh, what I was envisioning. He really gets the books. He, you know, he, so, I'm, so I'm pleased he found them. And I'm pleased he's, he's doing this work around it. I just wanted to mention Publish Drive to you because I received my first Publish Drive payment, my first royalty payment from Publish Drive. Um, just wanted to let you know that when you when you get royalties in Publish Drive, they tell you what your royalties are in dollars. And obviously, I receive it in pounds. But because of the payment processor that they use, you've got to knock five dollars off that. So this is interesting because it brings me into my into my cryptocurrencies interest. The whole point of cryptocurrencies or one of the points of cryptocurrencies is that, you know, if Western Union send me a check, it takes days to get to me in this electronic age. They can't, they don't pay me instantly. Um, Draft the Digital will issue me a, uh, a payment and it takes three or four days to get to me. And this is the 21st century. The whole point of cryptocurrencies is that you can send it across the world for fees that are maybe a penny 
to say the trans transaction fee. So I won't bore you with all of that because you're not here for that. But the, the principle here is that my royalties came in dollars net of $5 handling fee for the payment, which reduces them even more. That's interesting, isn't it? That's that's eroding your your fees. Now, clearly, if you're earning a fortune off Publish Drive, you won't care. But I'm not uh, I'm not earning that much from Publish Drive. So it made a little bit of a difference to me. Um, but it, I, I'm not moaning about it. I'm just flagging it up just to let you know that when you publish on Publish Drive. So, for instance, if I publish directly on Google, I just get the payment straight to me, not net of the five dollars. Whereas with Publish Drive, it's net five dollars. It's a net off the $5 payment. Um, but it's just worth me flagging up to you when you're you're making that kind of judgment between should I go direct on Google, should I go direct on Publish Drive? But I still prefer Publish Drive. I, I still much prefer the interface and I really like the service. Um, MailerLite, this month, I've been in two book, not BookLinker, what are they called? Not InstaFreebie. What's the other one? BookFunnel. I've been in two BookFunnel promos this month and... I have got 478 new subscribers and I gave away something like 600 and something books. So about a third of people roughly didn't bother signing up for my mailing list. Um, but I would say 478 new leads in a month is all right, particularly as I haven't press scanned them at all to go there. They're all there entirely voluntarily. The other thing I did this month, because it's the end of the month, is I sent another one of my monthly emails out. And I'm just getting a great reaction to these now. I'm, I'm really happy with it. I, I'm, I, I'm putting a little question in. And, and this month in the email, I, I've been watching a couple of films and series episodes where I, that I really love. So I've, I've, I watched The Dead Zone, Stephen King's The Dead Zone which was 1983, which surprised me. And I also watched an episode called The Inner Light of Star Trek, The Next Generation. And they're just really nice stories that I've always loved, the story structure. And I'd mentioned this in the email, and just as a throwaway line said, if you're watching, you know, what are you watching? What do you go back to time and time again? And I've got lots of responses from people to that. And I'm just finding these more personal. Oh, I even, sorry, I even got an email. I was going through the emails yesterday, and one lady said how much she enjoys reading my emails. Now, I'd never have got that in my days of internet marketing. But the conversations I'm now having with people are great, you know, and I'm seeing the same people coming back again. You really get this sense of building an audience that you're that you're having a conversation with about your books and writing and, and what they're watching. Um, so again, I just wanted to update you with that because 10 months in, these more personalised emails are really working for me. And that's why I decided to put my back catalogue of emails. If you go to selfpublishingjourneys.com, I've now got a dedicated page where I'm putting my back catalogue of those monthly emails out there so that you could look at them if you if you want to sort of see what I'm doing and see what's working and nick the ideas. You're very, I'm very happy for you to do that. Um, the most spectacular uh, feedback I've had so far is where I just asked a simple question. Would you prefer to read my books in English UK or English USA? That's got the best reaction ever. They've got a really good debate going. So um, I highly recommend it to you, uh, is what I'm saying. I just wanted to mention to you, um, I, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't quite tied down my writing plans yet for 2019. I got a lot of things floating around, but one of the things that I am mulling over at the moment and, and you'll you'll kind of hear this I, this is me just thinking things through but you'll hear this when I give you my quarter one 2019 plans I'll talk to you about what I've settled on but one of the things I was thinking through I was thinking about um you know just things I'm reading Chris Fox books and things like that and the fact that I, I make most of my money from the Don't Tell Meg series because that's been bringing money in 
I, I haven't really done very much with the four standalones I've done. And I was just thinking about this the other day, and I was thinking about Adam Nichols and how he took old books off and re- repackaged them. And what, when the, this may change, so I'm just talking aloud here and sharing my thoughts with you. Um, this is not set in stone yet, but at the moment, my rough plan for 2019 is to write four thrillers, standalone, but in a series. So they don't have cliffhanger endings, but they're in they're a they're a series. They they may or may not use Alex and Pete, the main characters of the Don't Tell Meg trilogy, but they will not refer back to the Don't Tell Meg trilogy. So the Don't Tell Meg trilogy would become a sequel, a, a prequel. Um, and and you kind of join the characters in book one, um, just kind of where they are. They're just getting involved in crimes, and because I looking at what other people are doing and what's working is, I think what I need to write next is a series that has the same characters that doesn't have cliffhanger endings, so you can read the books in any order that you want. They're just self-contained crimes, but they do have the characters evolving over the series. And 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 I was just thinking this through, the logistics of it, and I was thinking, well, what I could easily do is the four standalones I've got, I could very easily um, just drop in characters, just in passing, drop in characters that I've written about in the Don't Tell Meg trilogy, so that I create a universe where all the books, even in a light way, are linked. And what I was thinking of doing is taking the four standalone books off the market, um, in possibly in January. So January is when I w- would do this. I've got So Many Lies, which is, is ready to be edited and released. And then I would have four books that I'll be writing one a quarter in 2019. And I was just sketching this out. And I realised that if I start with the launch of So Many Lies... And if I then do go, I could then go for rapid release and rapid release a book every 30 days right till the end of the year um, because of the way my writing schedule works. And if they're in the same universe, that would work really well. So one of the ideas, I say I'm only talking aloud now, I'm just sharing my thoughts with you, but because I've been reading so many of Chris Fox's books, hearing about 30 day cliffs and, and looking at what Adam Nichols was doing to achieve the, the success he had, and also thinking, well, I've got four standalones, I haven't done anything with them because I've been making my money off uh, the Don't Tell Meg trilogy. Just thinking I've got some assets here that I could take off the market, repackage, um, just rewrite very slightly, just to drop in, characters in the universe you know in many cases it would just be a case of changing a character name or something like that to somebody I've used in a previous book and just making them link by universe and then starting in May with so many lies I could drop a book every 30 days right to the end of the year for seven months isn't it I could do seven books over the course of a year and some of those would be books as I hit the new books they got edited they would be the new books I'd written and some of them would be other books in the universe but we could go bang 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 over seven months uh, and then try this rapid release strategy you know without me having to write a book a month because I'd have effectively I've got five books in the pot um, and three of them would be written in that year um, and, and, and that would give me the 30-day release period. So, you know, I, I share all my crazy ideas or most of my crazy ideas in this podcast. So I just thought I'd let you know about that and let you know that is an idea that I'm mulling over for 2019. But I won't crystallise that until a little bit, you know, until a couple of weeks' time probably. On the um, show notes for this week, I've shared uh, an article. I have used Booklinker for probably a couple of years now. Booklinker was a free service that allowed you to cut and paste your Amazon book links in 
and it would ge- so it's just Amazon book links and it would geolocate them. So if I share it's the, the book link is something like viewbookat uh, dot secret bunker something like that. And I would share that link. And if you were in the state, you'd click on the link. It would take you to Amazon.com. If you're in Spain, it would take you to Amazon.es. In the UK, Amazon.co.uk. So it was a geolinker. And this was free. And I love it. But it's been taken over by Genius, Genius Links. And um, Genius Links are much cleverer. They do all sorts of things. You can put affiliate links in and the tracking's better and the management's better and everything. Uh, but Genius is a paid service. But I decided to um, move my book linker links. I've migrated them now over to Genius Links because I, I love the service. I'm very happy to pay $5 or whatever it is a month for it. And I want all the extra bits like affiliate links and things like that that they could do. Um, so I did the migration this week. But there's a really good... Um, article that they did about using affiliate links and not getting banned. So I wanted to share that with you on the show notes this week because uh, you have to be very careful how you use your affiliate links, particularly Amazon affiliate links. And I thought this was one of the best articles I've seen explaining what you can and what you can't do. You know, rather because you know what I'm like, I can't be bothered to read the terms and conditions. I'd rather just read a Reader's Digest version. Well, this is the Reader's Digest version. It just tells you what you need to know and you know, and none of the old nonsense around it. So um, that's on the resources page for this week's podcast diary. It was great to see um, Edwin Downward tweeting. Um, Edwin's in Canada uh, and I'm in the UK. And I think I'd made a comment about Space 1999 and UFO maybe being, um, I thought they were kind of UK uh, base. I didn't know how well they'd traveled, but Edwin says that uh, Space 1999 and UFO um, are things that he watched as, as, as a child. And, and he says, to add context, my doctor is John Pertwee. John Pertwee is my doctor who as well. John Pertwee and Tom Baker, you could age yourself from these things. So I was just really interested to hear Edwin in Canada uh, having those same sort of sci-fi influences. And I know that uh, Edwin writes in sci-fi as well. We'll be chatting actually for this podcast in a week or two. Um, so I hadn't realised how well-travelled they were. Bearing in mind they were sort of 70s shows, um, I wasn't aware of how far sort of BBC UK shows had travelled throughout the world but obviously they have all over the world which is great. Um, I had said to you that I thought that interviews for this podcast would go monthly from December. I've had too many bookings come in just naturally where that isn't going to happen so the the latest is that we'll be running uh, weekly interview episodes up to the first week of January and I'm planning currently to go monthly interview episodes after that so the weekly episodes are going to continue until the first week of January at the moment but I had so many people that I'd spoken to and been trying to get on they've come back to me and said yes I just thought you know you know if 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 all these interviews are landing on a plate for me then we might as well do them and and so basically you're going to get another month's worth of weekly interviews and it's interesting again I'm saying that to you now, but this will all come up for review. Um, you know, I've, I'm so, uh, because if we're going to Spain, I've got this ridiculous schedule at the moment where I'm pre-recording, I think, an extra four crypto podcasts. And i got to make sure i got four or five of these podcasts pre-recorded and ready to go before I go to Spain. So I don't have to do anything in Spain. So I can't really see the wood for the trees at the moment because I'm so busy trying to get ahead with everything so that uh, sort of the service is not interrupted while I'm in Spain. But I, I, I'm not going to be able to do anything while I'm in Spain. I'm not taking all my rig out there with me. I'll just take a laptop out there with me. So I need to make sure it's all on automatic while I'm in Spain. Um, so I may, um, I, I got to put this in some context too because I've had my highest ever podcast downloads this month for this podcast. Uh, you know, quite 
quite a substantial uh, leap in the in the numbers and that's presumably because we're now back to the weekly interviews we've, we've probably built audience over summer and now I've got more episodes available that's brought the baseline right up um, because the, the numbers didn't really change over summer so I can only assume I've, I've grown audience over summer now because I've got more episodes the the, the total number has gone up so um, you know it's always a nice little uh, boost uh, you know personal boost if your numbers are going up rather than down or staying steady so again I'll have to review that I think you know really I can't make a final decision on that until I've seen my my download numbers for another month to see if they're holding steady and growing and if I'm sort of seeing substantial growth as a result of doing the weekly interview episodes then I, m- I may continue to do those I have to say that <laughs> it's funny you know I, the thing is I do those interviews you do know, sometimes after a day's work and you think oh, I'm tired I don't really want to do an interview but you get the interview done you always, I always enjoy it I always have a laugh it's always good fun um, and then I have to do the editing and the editing is the bit I thought oh crack this takes a long time but when I'm doing the editing I'm usually doing something else when I'm doing the editing and I always say to my wife you know I always moan about it and I, I but what else would I be doing in that time you know I can either sit and watch telly when I come home or I can get something productive done and it always sort of comes down to that really am I gonna I can always sit and watch telly the time's gonna pass anyway I might as well be doing this but I mean I hope you could appreciate you know doing three episodes a week it, it does squash the time a little bit so um let's see what the downloads do in November and then I'll probably make a final call on that um you know at the beginning of December finally make my mind up about that um, but at the moment the plan is for the weekly episodes to sort of go the, the interview episodes to go monthly from the first week of January but uh, as you know everything's subject to change with this I just wanted to uh, mention a couple of things that have been on Twitter this week I got a nice uh, a tweet from uh, Patrick Sheriff in Japan and um, uh, I always I, you know you know how I love getting these tweets uh, Patrick says, listening to your diary while watching the local annual half marathon in Abiko, Japan. And um, there's a couple of people there running in banana suits. And Patrick says, we're bananas for self-publishing. Can you tell I used to write captions for local newspapers? I certainly can with a headline like that. So that's a really nice picture. Thank you very much for that, Patrick. And then I got one from Tim Lewis. Now, Tim is usually in some glorious park when he's tweeting. But on this uh, occasion, he put, um, I listened to your podcast in all the most glamorous places. And he's going down some kind of the sort of alleyway where you might expect to be mugged. Um, It's not an underpass, but it's got a quite, it's sort of, alley that you wouldn't want to walk down in the dark uh, basically so uh, uh, yeah I was a bit concerned that Tim might get mugged down there and it's near a multi-story car park so it can't all be glamorous can it Tim um, but uh, I, I think I prefer the parks I do I like the the, the, the woodland where you walk they're, they're lovely shots that's it for the podcast diary part of the episode we're going to take a little um, musical interlude and then I'm going to come back with the special sort of episode the special insert my path to publication that's coming up in a moment Hello, this is Richard Maidley, co-host of the Richard and Judy Book Club, and you're listening to the Self-Publishing Journeys podcast with Paul Teague. Let's move on to this special segment then for episode 250, My Path to Publication, 20 Things Which Led to the Publication of My First Book, which was The Secret Bunker. And probably... For a lot of you, this started years and years and years ago. Uh, I, I can only mark this from when I've got evidence of what I was writing. But I think I was always, to be honest, you know, playing games, imaginative games, scribbling and writing. And what I'm going to show you in this section 
uh, and you can watch this on a video, by the way. So you can either listen to it on the podcast, you can watch it on the video, and I'll put some screenshots and photographs on the show notes. Uh, so whichever way you're watching it or absorbing this, hopefully it will all make sense to you. So 20 things which got me to publication. Things that I've still got in the loft, tucked away, and that I can show you on the screen today. And, and I'm guessing, like most of us, I started by writing stories. And I'm holding up to the, the camera now an exercise book from school. And looking at the writing, I think this must have been in, in Judea's by the looks of it. So let's have a look at the cover. There's no cover on it. The cover's come off. I'm pretty sure this is in, in Judea class. And this is just packed with story. So the, the story here is the Enchanted Pogo Stick, which was a classic. And by the way, I was always rubbish at uh, doing the illustrations. All the stories are illustrated, but that's definitely not a skill that I've got. Uh, <laughs> that, that I've got. And then you've got comments like this. I've enjoyed your stories, but I don't think I approve of your way out spellings. Nothing changes. <laughs> that could be feedback from my editor. Um, so, so that's quite funny. Nothing does um, change. But uh, what else have we got? Um, we've got Mystery on the QE2. Uh, what else have we got here? Uh, the Revenge of Tutaki, I think that one is. Something like that. Tutako, which is... Um, it's obviously based on Tutankhamun, but it's a, it's a story written about um, a mummy coming alive by the looks of it. Um, I've got a story here called The Animal Doctors. I mean, goodness knows where I got these ideas from. Lots of terrible drawings. I've got um, a comment here, a lovely story. I just used to write stories constantly as a kid. What's this one? Oh, this is this this could almost be the funny thing is is how history repeats itself. This could almost be the story I've just written. This is called the uh, the Castaways, and this story is about the cannibals. Well, I've just written my last mystery. Uh, so many lies is written on a on a desert island. So maybe I'm I'm just recycling the same old plot. So there's a I don't know whether this will even show on the video, but there's a, a a really terrible picture there of somebody being shot in the back with arrows. So I mean, this is you know this is kind of what what we all did, isn't it, as kids? And uh, I've got a super story, Paul. I look forward to the next chapter with anticipation. Um, I know my my primary school teacher. I had a lovely primary school teacher. Um, you know how you go through life with teachers, and some of them inspire you, and some of them kind of you know kill any any kind of creativity you've got. Well, this was a teacher who inspired me. I used to get on really really well with her because she used to love the stories and really enjoy them. Of course, I just used to write more and more of them. So that was a really important part in my school years and then this is this is another exercise book this is when I moved to secondary school and I, I, I you, you had less opportunity I think in secondary school to write stories <laughs> I'm just looking at the pictures on this story this one's called um so I was obviously still writing I think this was about writing for audience this is from 1979 17th of May 1979 and I've put uh, the age group I can't even read the age group there uh, but I've put um, <laughs> the teachers question this. It's for something like, I don't know, nine to ten year olds. And then I've put for slow eight to nine year olds. And the teachers question that as rightly she should have done. Um, but the story is called The Dream Chariot. And if I just hold this uh, up to the, the video, as I say, I will sort of put some of these a taste of this. There's more classic Paul illustrations in this story uh, that's that's not so bad there's a picture of a, a crazy car I don't, I don't know what even the story is about and uh, I don't know what happened to this guy this is a guy who's got uh, thick black hair and a beard and this illustration it's probably it's supposed to be a cyclops 
but not uh, not my best work, I don't think. But you know, we all kind of did this. I'm guessing most of you who who, who turned to writing did that kind of thing. So I was always inspired by by stories and writing, and that takes me to the classic uh, Mr. Plum and Mr. Apple. And again, I'll, I'll try and take a photo of these for the resources page. But um, these are the first books that I wrote. Uh, they were written because I was a kid at the time. I mean, how old was I? Nine or ten, probably, when these were written. Uh, in those days, we used to go to the village shop and you used to get yourself a Basildon Bond pad. And uh, it seems so dated now, but that's how we all used to write letters. So you always used to have a Basildon Bond writing pad around the house either lined or not lined, because that's how you wrote your letters to people. It's how you wrote your thank you letters and things like that. And that's what I used to use to write my stories in those days. So what I'm holding up to the screen now are the original stories. Now I've got, what have we got here? This is Mr. Plum and Mr. Apple. And the title is called, this is a classic title, The Day of the Mystery. And I've spelt mystery incorrectly, of course. Uh, this is the classic, more about Mr. Plum and Mr. Apple. Um, there's Mr. Plum and Mr. Apple and the Time Machine. Uh, what's this one called? Mr. Plum and Mr. Apple and the Mystery in China. This one's called, and I've I haven't put a capital letter on China. And mystery, I keep spelling M I S T E R Y. So it really is funny how some things never change. I don't spell mystery that way, but I'll be misspelling some other word, no doubt. And um, what have we got here? This is the classic. Mr. Plum and Mr. Apple meet the computer brain gang. And uh, this makes me laugh, actually. It's got a dedication on it to my family and relations. <laughs> don't think that one ever got published. Um, so that's kind of a, a pile of Mr. Plum and Mr. Apple stories. And these were the, this was my first effort, if you want, at taking what I was doing at school and turning that into something that I was going to send to publish. I hadn't got a clue you know what publishing involved or anything like that i do remember that we used to have an old a very old guinness book of records which friends had given us and i remember there was a story in there i think about a girl who was she was seven eight or nine she was at primary school and that she was the youngest person ever to have got a book published in the uk presumably uh, and that had inspired me and here's another story that i'd written this one's called uh, mad science stories from dr brainwaves science laboratory now why was I writing all these stories, um, you know, about kind of mad professors and things like that? Well, the reason for that was, is, um, and I'm going to move on to the next things that, that inspired me here, was the kind of books that I was reading at the time. So I was uh, very keen on a series of books called Professor Brainstorm, which were written by a guy called Norman Hunter, which you've probably never even heard of. But I used to love the Professor Brainstorm books. And then the kind of books I was reading at the time was this. This is uh, Puzzlers for Young Detectives. So this is where I learned everything I know about police procedure, <laughs> DNA sampling, which I don't think had even been invented in those days. So Puzzlers for Young Detectives was where I learned everything I know about crime scene procedures. Now, I, I honestly, I've watched a bit of telly and stuff like that, but that's where it all started, of course. That was the CSI of its day, that book, Puzzlers for Young Detectives. And like everybody, I was reading uh, Enid Blyton. And although I, I think I read virtually all the famous five books, um, I had a friend whose mum had them all in hardback. And he, he, was, he was like my drug supplier. He used to bring me one on a Friday uh, at school. And I would read it, uh, pretty well read it, 
by bedtime on Friday night. And if I needed an hour or two to finish it, I'd finish it on the Saturday morning before we went to town. That's how routinized things were in those days. But I, I think I used to love the Famous Five, but I, I remember that the... The mystery series, so the Rubberdub mystery, um, with a guy called uh, Barney. I mean, you, these are not as well known. It was uh, Roger, Diana, and Snubby, and then Barney's this this guy. I think he's a travelling child or something who keeps joining him, if I remember rightly, in these mysteries. But these were slightly more substantial than the Famous Five, and I remember these re really fired me off when I found this series, uh, the the the, um, the mystery series. They were good. Um, I never liked the famous, what was it, The Secret Seven. I love The Famous Five, and I love these mystery series, so that's what I was reading. Something else that inspired me, too, was Agaton Sachs. Again, you've probably never even heard of this stuff. It was a book that I got from uh, the book clubs that we used to have at school. Uh, this is Agaton Sachs of the Scotland Yard Mystery. This inspired so much play, you know, so much love of mysteries and codes. I used to make my own codes and things like that. And all of these were really formative in what I'm doing now as a thriller writer. This is what led me to, to where I am now. And I must show you this book too, Chalky. This is a really important book in my life. And these are all the original books, by the way. I've saved them because they're just so uh, kind of important to me. You will never have heard of Howard Apps, the guy who wrote uh, Chalky. But this was a, just a Christmas present that was bought for me by um, some friends and I think they probably just you know, bought something from the local shop. I don't think there was an awful lot of care and attention taken with the selection of it because no, no one's ever heard of this guy before or since. Um, but talk about a story that fired my imagination. I've come back to it several times in my life. And the funny thing about it is, where, where, see if I can find the, the picture. There we go. Look, um, I, it was too old for me at the time. And you, you probably, if you've got the video screen, you might be able to see some red marks on the pages there. Um, it was it was too old for me when I first read it. And my mum said to me, well, just, just underline the words you don't know and look them up in the, in, the, in the dictionary later. So just to give you a sample of the words that I didn't know at that time, you've got disentangle, grievous, remission, maligned, assessed, should have known that one. Ludicrous, should have known that one. Probably couldn't read it though. Uh, industry and unobserved. So it was quite, oh, dilapidated. Do you know what I try, it's funny that, that's where I learned the word dilapidated in this book, and it got used everywhere since. I probably still use it. Um, but this was a story, it was a mystery story. And, um, you know, I came to it with no preconceptions, but it was about two schoolboys who just caught, got caught in a mystery. And it's a thriller, and it's really exciting. It's a really good book. Um, but no one would have ever heard of it, and it's from some publisher that no one would have ever heard of. But I loved it, and I returned to it several times in my in my reading career so I was probably still coming back to that book as a teenager um so these were really important books um for me as a child now going back to the Mr Plum and Mr Apples um I sent those books off so I've shown you the books that were inspiring me at the time and uh, I sent those Mr Plum and Mr Apple books off and this is where I got my rejection letters from Penguin so I'm holding up to the video now, if you're watching the video, my first rejection letter from Penguin Books. So um, if I look at the, the publishers here, Piccolo, Target, a lot of the books I was reading, Professor Brainstorm was published by, uh, well, it was P Puffin Books at the time, wasn't it? P Puffin Books were what we used to read as kids. So this is dated the 11th of October, 1974. So I was, how old was I then? Nine, I think, nine and a half then. So this was this is evidence of the first book I ever sent to to a publisher. 
And it reads, Dear Paul, thank you for sending us your three stories. We enjoyed reading them, and especially the first one about Mr Plum and Mr Apple, or Mr Apple and Mr Plum, as they put it. Scans better, Mr Plum and Mr Apple. We thought the clever way they invented all sorts of useful things was a very good idea on your part. Now, that was inspired by Professor Brainsaw. It wasn't copied, but it was inspired by that. We also liked the way they all thought and double thought and treble thought. So this was this was just kind of... Um, you know, a brand, if you want, that the, that when they were thinking about things, they, they, they thought, they double thought, and they treble thought when they were thinking about things. So I suppose that was reasonably creative, wasn't it, for a nine-year-old? So the reason that we're sending the stories back to you is that we are what is known as a reprint house. This means we can only publish books that have already appeared in hardback editions. But we thought you might like to know about our Puffin Club, which I joined, I'm sure, uh, and it's magazine Puffin Post. Members' original stories and poems are published there. And if you join and send something in... Try and make it as short as possible, a bit shorter than these stories, which is interesting, isn't it? That they said those stories were too long. So they did. I know they look ridiculous now. They're hilarious because they're so short. But at that age, um, I'm sure they felt like a bit of a stretch. You know, they felt like the effort that you would put into writing a book, even though there were nowhere near the number of words that you would need for a book. So um, I thought that was really, um, really nice, really encouraging. It's it's a typewritten letter, mistakes and all, just how we used to do things in those days, and it's hand-signed. And I just thought that was a really encouraging letter, which is why I kept it. Now, um, not deterred by that, I also sent the stories to pan books. Uh, have I got a pan book here? No, I haven't got a pan book here, but they were also a big sort of children's publisher at the time. So it was obviously, what I obviously did is I, I looked at the, the books that I was reading and that were on my shelf, and I just sent it to those publishers. There was no kind of method to this. There was no one to guide me. This was just something that I did. And again, you know, you have to think, I don't think, I'm trying to think whether we got pocket money. If we did, it was a tiny amount of pocket money. So even a stamp and envelopes and writing paper would have pretty well wiped me out of my money in those days. You know, we had no money as kids. It's hilarious now, isn't it, when you talk about it? But these would have all been a stretch. You know, for me to buy envelopes and a pad would have certainly wiped out a couple of weeks' pocket money, which I know is hilarious in this day and age, but that's kind of how it was when we were kids. So this is from Pan Books. This is the 9th of April 1976. I'm just comparing those dates. Yeah, so this is a couple of years after, so I was <laughs> sending the same old tap back <laughs> to, to the publishers by the sounds of things. And this says, uh, Dear Paul, thank you very much for your manuscripts for stories which you sent us some time ago. Um, I'm very sorry that I've not written back before. We enjoyed reading your stories very much indeed, but unfortunately we do not publish very much original fiction. Most of our books have already appeared in hardback before we publish them in paperback, which is really interesting, isn't it, on, with both of those publishers. So therefore, I suggest that you send your work to a hardback publisher where you might have more luck, although it, it is more difficult to get short stories published than full-length stories. If you go to your local public library, you'll find a book called The Writers and Artists Yearbook, which lists the names and addresses of all the publishers. Now, you know, again, what great advice that was. This was 1976, and I went and got the, um, what was it called? <laughs> the book, the artist, the writers and artists yearbook. I went and got that or looked at it from the library. I don't think you could take it out from the library. I think it was a reference book. And, and that was on my radar from that point onwards. And I now, I have a copy. I'm pointing it on the video, but on my shelf to the side of me now, I'm, I'm not going to go and get it because I'm a bit cluttered because I've got so much stuff out for this episode at the moment. But, um, that 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 has been an important book uh, and i i've known about that because of the advice i got as a child so i i just think that was really sort of supportive uh, just very supportive stuff um, i'll mention it here just because they're on the page but uh, you know i just to show you that 
I, you know, I got my first, I self-published my first book at however old I was, 50, 50, 50, 49, whatever it was. Um, but I've been doing this for a long time. And I, I, I would encourage you to sort of think back about this process. There are so many things that have been pivotal in this for me that I hadn't really realized. But the, the letter that I was holding up to the video there is dated um, July 1975. And it was a competition that I won in Wizard and Chips comic. I won a pound, I think. That's what you used to win in those days. Uh, yeah, it was a pound pocket money. Um, but I've always gone in for letter writing competitions. I've always gone in for, comp you know, I've sent jokes in to, to comics. This is, I'm holding up now one from the Topper. Um, congratulations on wishing, uh, winning a prize in the Topper magazine. It hasn't got a date, this one, but it'll be about the same time. It's from DC Thompson in Fleet Street. Those of you know what happened at Fleet Street will know that's very sort of of historical relevance. They sent me a prize, and I think I must have got a joke or a letter published in the Topper at that time. Um, but I was always doing stuff. By the way, that prize from Topper was a diving submarine. And if you sort of think we were not sophisticated kids in those days, and I always wanted this diving submarine, this submarine um, that you put in the water and it would dive and then it would surface. That seemed really technical to us as kids. And when I got my diving submarine from Topper, it was just a plastic submarine. And used to put these um, tablets in. I'm just trying to think what they would have been. There would have been some, you know, some bicarbonate of soda or something kind of tablet that put gas in a chamber and then discharged it. That's what it must have been. But it didn't work. I, I, I'd looked so much forward to getting this prize. I put this submarine in the water and all it did was sink. <laughs> it never surfaced again. So that was a very disappointing prize. Brought back a very harsh memory, that one. Okay, so uh, where are we up to? We've, we've done the books that I was reading at the time. Uh, we've done Mr. Plummer, Mr. Apple. Let's talk about TV as well, because TV was really important in this. You know, I, All of this stuff feeds directly into my writing. So what was I watching on TV as a child? Obviously, we were watching Blue Peter, Magpie, and all the kind of serious stuff. I asked the family I used to watch. But the ones that fueled my imagination, the ones that still feed into my writing today, when I was a young child, this is when I was at primary school, were Flash Gordon. They used to show the old Buster Crab, Flash Gordon's uh, over Christmas in the UK. The Buck Rogers with with Buster Crab. He did the Flash Gordons and, and, and the Buck Rogers. They used to show those over Christmas. Used to tune in every Thursday night for the $6 million man with Lee Majors. Used to love that. A hugely influential um, TV series on me. Uh, was Space 1999. I'm just gonna. I'm holding up to the camera now my dinky toy, my eagle toy, which was the spaceships that they used to have in Space 1999. I would have got this for Christmas, uh, this eagle, and I've still got my eagle toy. And I built a diorama. I used to build space dioramas, and um, I think um, we had a cleaner at, at the time. I used to, a lady used to come and, and clean the house. She used to curse me because I'd created the the, the planetary. Uh, sort of diorama using bits of polystyrene which were all crushed up and every time she used to get this diorama out of my bed to hoover all the polystyrene bubbles used to go over the place so she used to hate me for this but I built a whole moon base alpha on this diorama and used to act out these stories using my my fabulous eagle toy and I had of course I had a dinky toy of Thunderbird 2 as well so I was doing all of that kind of stuff as well and we used to watch UFO on the television uh, Jerry Anderson was you know Captain Scarlet uh, Joe Knighty were always my favorites and Thunderbirds so this stuff was fueling my imagination all the time and you know um, I was really pleased when Simon Magus who, who's doing the musical version 
the music audio version of the Secret Bunker series. He, he just got all these references when he wrote to me. He just got the references. You know, he, he he's watching, or he was watching all the same stuff as me, all the same influences. And I think anybody who's a child of the 70s, born in the 60s, child in the 70s, um, this is the stuff that influenced um, all of us. And it was great when Simon got in contact with me and just he just recognised all the references. He recognised where I was rooted in science fiction. And of course, there are other things influenced me since, but this is what, as a child, really, really uh, had a big impact on me as a child. Okay, so that's kind of primary school. This is, you know, pre-11. We then move on and we go to secondary school. So when I was at secondary school, I was doing all sorts of writing. And um, there was less opportunity, I think, to produce books and, and sustained writing. But this is an example of one of the things that I that I did do. This is with a friend. Uh, it's Monoclonius Plesiosaurus's Cookery Book of Dinosaurs in lots of easy lessons. It's illustrated by Terry Dactus. So the, <laughs> the humour and the writing skill gets no better, I'm afraid. Um, but this was written with a friend, uh, and it was kind of like a fictionalised uh, cookery book. So that's an example of the kind of stuff that I was producing when I was at school. And I, I joined the drama club at school, and um, I haven't got a copy of it now. But uh, I remember uh, when I was 14, 15, we, I, I was always in the drama club and uh, taking part in plays. I was in Snow White and the Seven Hippies. Um, I used to take part in the village church plays as well. I was one of King Herod's disco courtiers. Um, you know, I was I, any drama I was doing. I used to love drama as well at the time. But I also I tried my hand at writing. So I remember we needed a Christmas play when I was 14 or 15 for the drama club. And I used to love, I should have brought it actually, it's in, in the main, in the living room. But my mum gave me a really old um, edition of A Christmas Carol. It's fallen to bits, but it's so old. And I read that story. I love that story. I love A Christmas Carol. Uh, it's it's the perfect story in terms of structure, resolution and everything. I love The Christmas Carol. And it's short, which is merciful for a Dickens book. It's a really short, sharp, easy read. Um, but it's a perfect story structure, I think, A Christmas Carol. And, and it's very short. And um, so I went away one weekend. And I think I had a, an old, we had an electric typewriter, which had been thrown out of my dad's work at the time, which I was allowed to use. Um and I, 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 my memory tells me that I typed it on that. So I knocked out a play based around A Christmas Carol. The teachers loved it. They took it and adapted it. And we ended up staging this, this Christmas Carol play. Uh, and we did it in quite an, an innovative way as well. So I did write a play at school as well. But the one I've got to show you is the one I did when I was in the sixth form. So by this stage, this play, I was um, 17 or 18. And we used to have, we were divided into houses at school. So we had four houses and we used to have a house drama competition. So when I was in the sixth form, um, I remember going to the library at Lincoln, which is the county that we used to live. And I, I went looking in the plays there. I found a play, I think it was called, Have You Anything to Declare? Yes, it was called Have You Anything to Declare? And it was quite an old fashioned play and it was a farce kind of play. And I took that and I adapted it um, for the house drama and then I got the people together to act uh, from different year groups and, uh, and we won um, uh, we won and I, <laughs> I played the role in this in this um, in this play of uh, Lady Begonia and I had to dress in a uh, in drag so I had to, I had to, I was a dominating um, sort of you know like almost like a Victorian woman so I, I had a feather in my hair and a 
and a, and a purple dress. Thank, thank goodness we didn't have Facebook Live or anything like that because no, there's no pictures of this. There's no evidence of this at all. Thank goodness, you know, that we were allowed to do all this stuff when we were kids and no one, no one filmed it, no evidence. We just got to do it. Um, but I can always, my mum came to see it because parents were allowed to see house drama. And my mum nearly wet herself laughing when, when I, when I did this. Because it was a very sort of in character thing, and I had a one of the kids earlier on in, in the school years, a tiny kid, and I and I sort of was towered over them, and I was this 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 it was this domineering um, wife, and I just had this sort of one scene, um, which kind of went down um, very well, uh, but that was that was my kind of acting copy. This is just this is all that's left now of the prompts copy. In actual fact, I, I've just realised that I was flashing that I've got two scripts here. I hadn't realised that. So this this was the house drama one when we won house drama, which I I, I adapted that one. And then this play, I'm not even going to let you see the text of this play. This was this was actually one of this was a an assembly that we did. We used to have to take assemblies when we were uh, in the sixth form. And this is you know these terrible angsty sick for me oh you know those kind of real winters when you're just becoming aware of politics and uh sort of societal pressures and all of this it's it's, it's one of those right this one this one is never seeing the light of day um but it, it, <laughs> let me just tell you if i just give you a sense of where this was going it's not a classic this it won't be winning any awards but this was from 1982 it was our assembly the 16th of September, 1982. This is how far back this one goes. So I would have been, what was it? I was 17 then. And um, two of the main characters are Society 1 and Society 2. Oh, it makes me wince even saying it. All right, so that's one of those. It's not a classic. It won't be winning any awards. The other thing I found is um, I, I got sort of bits all over the place, and sometimes I don't date them. Oh yeah, this is yeah. Age, age. I was age fourteen when I wrote this. So this is a story that I wrote aged fourteen. We've moved. You see, we've moved into A four pants now. And this is interesting actually, because if I was fourteen, uh, when was I? What, what year would this be? Fourteen. I was born in sixty five, seventy five, so nineteen seventy nine. So this story says it, it was Christmas Eve. Dave Hill. Dave Hill, incidentally, is the guitarist Slade. I often used to use pop names in my stories. Uh, Dave Hill, a computer programmer sat huddled over a computer keyboard, typing furiously as if obsessed with the action. He had agreed to work overtime that night because of an important phone call due in from Russia. <laughs> it's classic stuff. My stories haven't really moved on very much since this. Um, but um, in fact, I've even got a scene in, which book is it? Who to Trust, which is based on Christmas, people working on Christmas Eve, you know, Christmas Eve. So I was 14 here. I was thinking, if I've got a computer programmer setting over a computer keyboard, I was thinking, we didn't even have the internet then when I was 14. And the only computer I must have seen, I don't know, we had a pet computer at, at secondary school. I'm just thinking that's all I must have had. We, we had no internet then. So it was quite, um, you know, quite advanced writing a, a story about computers at the age of 14. But of course, this was all the influence of the sci-fi and stuff like that. Now, at secondary school, the other thing that I did, where are we? I'm just showing you how I'm leaning over if you're watching this on the camera at the moment. Um, we used to have a village magazine, uh, a news sheet. And I think somebody made the fatal error once of saying, if you want to write short stories for this, you know, get in contact. And that was like a red rag to a bull to me because I was then writing short stories. And, and as a teenager, over a couple of years, I think this thing... It was so much more difficult to produce these things in those days. If I'm again, I'm holding up a, a sheet, one of my stories called "Just Another Failure." 
it's actually it's not a bad story. Somebody somebody who didn't know I wrote these stories, um, one of the well-to-do people in the village who didn't know I was writing these stories, had sort of said, "Oh, I don't know why they take stories like the kind of rubbish I was putting in," but did comment that they really liked this one. So don't be put off by that angsty sort of. Um, essentially quite a mature story when I, I still read it, it's quite a mature short sharp story um, for, for however old I must have been when I wrote it it's, it's not 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 bad it's quite tight um it's not a classic of course as none of my writing is even now but um you know it's a it's a story it has an A to B um but but these were typewritten the whole magazine was typewritten so it wasn't it, it must have been once a quarter I think it wasn't wasn't month once a month so for a regular period as a teenager this is dated uh, November 1980 I've got a January 1981 here so I think sort of while I was I was probably writing these when I was maybe 14 15 16 17 something like that and there are just a few of them um but this is just another failure that was not a crime story that was just a standalone story um but then I I was getting into I'll show you the books I was reading at that time in a moment but I was I was inspired by the books I was reading at that time um, but I, I started to write thrillers then, and this is right. I wrote my own fate, and I'll I'll tell you what the the influence of these was in a moment or two. I was very heavily influenced at this time by a particular author, and I'm just having to scroll through these because it was typewritten. They're very random. Tomorrow's the day. Another two page story. The corpse stares from 1980. Uh, what else have we got? These are just. Thrillers. Oh, you're only safe when you're dead. <laughs> Classics. Yeah. And do you know what? When I read these stories, the thing that makes me really worry is that I haven't really changed very much in what thirty years, thirty-five years, something like that. And then a mystery tale. The first one went in as a mystery tale, and um, he gave me a name that the, the guy who did the village news sheet, and it was Teasel which was a play on my surname, Teagle. I hated Teasel so much that I started giving myself, I didn't want people to know, I was too embarrassed to let them know that it was me who was doing the writing. And you, and you had, you know, teenagers in the village who would have known and things like that. So um, I was hugely into Queen at the time, still am. You know, I don't change very much. I was into Queen, the pop group at the time. And, uh, you know, I went to see the Queen film last week. I, I, don't, I honestly don't change very much. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, but, you know, my tastes are very consistent. And um, so what I used to do is I used to, at that time, I was putting pop stars names in. So uh, I made my my writing name was Mercury because I was hugely into Queen and that's Freddie Mercury. And I used to weave into the, the names, the surnames of the, the pop group Queen. So one of the characters here is Deacon. Deacon was the, John Deacon was the bass player with Queen. Uh, what else have I got? Uh, I'm trying to just trying to look for the names. No, not all of them are not all of them are queen names. But I used to weave in a, a lot of pop star names in there as well. I have got some other names. Just scanning that now. This really turned me into thrillers. Okay, so you've, you've heard a lot of the sci-fi um, sort of inspirations, and of course I didn't mention Doctor Who in there. I was a John Pertwee, uh, Tom Baker, Doctor Who. That's that was my key era. era. I loved Doctor Who as well. But when I was a teenager. Um, I was still reading sort of sci-fi stuff, but um, this book, and I'm just going to warn you that this is a very kind of old-fashioned lady in a bikini cover, and then, I'll, uh, you know, don't be shocked by me holding this up. I'm going to give this some context, but this is what I was reading at the time. This book, James Hadley Chase, There's a Hippie on the Highway, has had a massive influence on me in my writing. But let me tell you the story of this. We used to have library sessions at secondary school. 
Um, and as all giggly teenage boys used to do, I just used to mess around with my my friends. We used to have the kind of alcoves in the library, which meant that the teacher couldn't see us, or we could mess around. And I was messing around with my friend, and I got told off by the teacher because I, I should have found a book to sit down and read. And, and I got really told off, you know, with those embarrassing ones when you're kind of humiliated in front of the class, and I, I you know you're in trouble. <laughs> you can't smile it away. And so I just grabbed a book, sat down, got my head down and started reading. And the book that I grabbed was this, There's a Hippie on the Highway. Now, it did not have that cover on it. And let me apologise, us being in the 21st century now, let me apologise for that cover. Um, these covers embarrass me as a teenager because that's the only way I could get James Hadley Chase books, which is why I've got this copy myself because I, I bought it. But James Hadley Chase, I mean, you'd never put a cover like this on a book now. But in those, I was so embarrassed as a teenager. I used to love these books. It was I, I've always called James Hadley Chase the adults Edith Blyton because they're just great thrillers. They're not complicated. Uh, you know, they're not clever. They're not intellectual. They're just great stories. You can sit down and read them. Um, that you know they're not subtle particularly in any way they're just brilliant stories and everyone you know is pretty well the same kind of story retold with different characters but I loved them and I rattled through them and I used to be thoroughly embarrassed by these blasted covers I still am embarrassed holding this cover up to I always feel like I need to explain that I'm not some sort of horrible sexist misogynist pig because I'm getting these covers it's just how the books come okay so I do apologize for the cover and by the way the covers have nothing to do with the content of the book absolutely nothing I guess this was just um, sort of putting covers to market in those days that they were generally aimed at men they're kind of sort of gangster I guess um, you know uh, guys kind of books really that I, I think that would have been the avatar the customer avatar and so in those days that's what they thought would get a man to put, pick the book up you couldn't get away with that nowadays um, but I this book I loved it and and you know when you're sort of you're sitting there you know blooming teacher blooming out you know chuntering away there and I'm reading this thing I think I love this it's great I love it and um, and I couldn't stop reading James Hadley Chase James Hadley Chase was pretty well all I read um, in between getting told off in that library session and then sort of going into uh, O level GCSE as it is now and A level when I was kind of very much into literature and very much involved in reading those texts then that's really where my reading for pleasure stopped and my reading to order uh, began um so so lots going on still here and then the other thing I need to tell you about is I was writing then for the school magazine uh, and I was just trying to find where the school some examples of the school magazine are so um well I've just seen something in my diary actually uh, the other thing I should mention to you about sort of early influences I'll just hold this up um 2000 AD the comic 2000 AD with Judge Dredd and it had Dan Dare um 2000 AD was also very very important to me in terms of my my influences at that time um I can just give you an example here we used to have a school magazine called Inside Story and um, I used to write for that. That's an article of mine, a review of um, Adam Ant on stage. Um, I should have, have I got anything else in here. Um, I, I used to write lots of articles for the school magazine as well. There we go. This is the page I'm looking for. Um, whole page of articles there when we were in the sixth form writing magazine articles for the, for the school magazine. Uh, and one of my stories went in there as well, one of my short stories from the village news sheet. So, you know, writing, writing, writing all the time, but I would never have described myself as a writer at that time. But I was, I was writing all the time, I hadn't realised that. 
So we did O-levels, I did A-level, I did English literature at A-level, and to me at that time, there was a period when I didn't read very much at all. Um, you know, for A-level, I had to read Little Dorrit. Little Dorrit's got about 850 pages. I had to read that in a week, which was about 125 pages a night, and I had to do that all, you know, for a week. So I have to say, although I read a lot of literature then, and people get very all lovey about, you know, I've done an English literature degree, an A-level and things like that. People get very lovey about that. Um, to be honest with you, although it exposed me to a lot of the classics and frankly made me <laughs> hate a lot of them because they're boring. Uh, I know that's controversial, but that's that's how I feel about a lot of classics. I'm not a big Shakespeare fan. Um, uh, you know, it's it's just a big, it's a slog for me. And a lot of the literature is a slog for me. I like to read contemporary stuff. Um, but I did... I did English literature at O-level. I did it at A-level. I really enjoyed it, actually, at A-level. We did E.M. Um, e. Forster, uh, Passage to India, which I loved. We did Wilkie Collins' Moonstone, which was also very influential um, on me. Um, we did Chinuara Chabi as well. I think it was, I don't know where it was, Things Fall Apart. I think it was another one. Uh, that was, I also enjoyed that. So I actually did do a lot of books. I did Lear. I did enjoy King Lear. We did Troilus and Cressida. Mm, it's a bit of an iffy Shakespeare, that one, I think. But uh, King Lear I loved, actually. Um, you know, so it wasn't all switched off, but but I think the problem with that period was is that I had to read to order. If I didn't like a book, I had to read it anyway. I couldn't just say, oh, I don't like that. I'm not enjoying that. And that that's the problem. My problem with English literature, I kind of like you to be able to choose books that you want to read. I know that's difficult to manage as a teacher, but I, I'd like to have a pool of books so that you can jettison ones that you don't really like. Because, you know, that having to read Little Dorrit, there are no circumstances when I have read Little Dorrit under my own steam. You know, it's a long book. It's okay, but, oh, you know, it's a lot of words. It's a, it's a lot of getting there. And um, and I would have just liked to choose books, have some choice in that process, because I don't think it sets you up as a, a reader for life, force-feeding books that you really don't want to read. And I think the way to accommodate that is to allow you to choose as a student from a selection of books that you personally can choose from, a portfolio that you can choose from, rather than just say, you will do these four books and you'll like them or lump them. Um, that, that would be my change that I make with English literature, because I didn't read for a long time uh, after English literature. It switched me off reading for a long time, really, because I didn't feel like I could start a book and put it down and leave it because I would had to read for so long. OK, so we've got to James Hadley Chase. We've done the school magazine. We're at A-level period. I did, um, I did sort of still harbour that kind of desire to write during that time. So if I just show you another letter... Um, I was listening to Radio 1, and they had a spooky story competition. I'm just trying to find the letter in my in my scrapbook here. What have I done with it? Um, I got a... Here it is. So I got a rejection letter from Radio 1, and I'd gone in for a spooky story competition. So this is 1979. How old was I then? 14. So it's another secondary school one. Uh, thanks very much for your spooky story. I mean, this is, this is hand-signed, and... You know, it's remarkable, isn't it? It's hand-signed and the feedback's lovely. Dear Paul, many thanks for your spooky story. I'm sorry to say yours wasn't chosen, but do try again next time we have a story competition. Uh, we'd very much like to hear from you again. So if there's anything you think we'd like to... Uh, anything you think we'd like to know about, please do write. I'm returning your entry. I do suggest that you might try entering it for publication in your local newspaper. You never know. You might be accepted. You know, how how lovely is that? I, I the The feedback I've got as a youngster, um, I think is fabulous. You know, I would never have been put off 
by that wonderful supportive feedback that I've got. And if you could go back to those adults and say to them, uh, and this is why I don't like trolls and people who are negative on social media. You know, it just takes it takes a comment to build someone, or it takes a comment to knock someone down. And all the letters I've read to you tonight, all they did was build me. You know, the stuff I was sending them was rubbish. Um, you know, it was hurried. Uh, you know, it it was it was kids' work. But it but here I am writing stories now. And if those people had knocked me down and t taken the wind out of my sails, um, then I maybe wouldn't have got to having written fifteen sort of books as an adult. So um, you know, it's so important. If you've got if something negative's in your head, keep it to yourself. If there's ever an opportunity to compliment or build somebody, then do so. That's kind of my policy in life, because you never know where that might take somebody. So I went on to do uh, an English degree, but this amazes me how much writing I've done. You know, I was still writing. Everything was based around writing. So I'm holding up now um, to the screen a number of letters that I wrote. So when I was a student in the summer holidays, I was always broke as a student because my dad couldn't make my grant up. So in the holidays, we used to get holidays in those days. And, um, you know, long sort of 14-week holidays. So um, I, w I used to write letters to magazines and try and get them published because you could win a fiver. And so this is this, and stories too, short stories. And I, I don't think I've got any of these stories, but uh, this is from Loving magazine. Um, and, and, and so I, I just, this was writing to audience, of course. I used to look at the magazines, buy the magazines, or get them. I wouldn't have bought them. I must have got them from charity shops or something. I couldn't afford to buy them. I would have looked at what they were, what the letters were in the letters and what were in the short stories. And then in my summer holiday, I would write stories. And I haven't got any of these left, I'm afraid, or any copies of them. Um, but this is um, this is basically saying, read the magazine. Thank you for submitting your story to Loving, but I'm afraid it's not quite suitable for us. Uh, below is a checklist of reasons for rejection. I've placed a tick against yours. So there were... <laughs> Just, just like one of my books nowadays. Reasons for rejection, flaws in plots and handling of emotions, and um, the subject matter was wrong. Read loving thoroughly, which means you know you chancer. Uh, who's this? Um, Richard Drew Publishing Limited. I don't even know who that is. It's a letter to a magazine. I don't know which magazine it is though. Thanks for your recent letter. Together with the material you sent, it must have been a story. Uh, we're not taking on any new material at present. Our publishing program is fully committed. So I, I don't even know what that was. Um, it was, would have been a, a woman's magazine, that one. You see, this is a surprise for me. I haven't seen this stuff for years. Fear magazine, fantasy, horror, and science fiction. Thank you for submitting your short story to Fear. Unfortunately, it's unsuitable for publication and returned herewith. Please don't let this deter you from trying again. I don't even know what Fear is. Um, Ms. was a, a sort of young woman's magazine. Uh, Ms. My Guy and Girl. Thank you for sending us your short, short story or feature. It's not suitable for publication. And, oh, I've got some nice feedback here. A nicely written story, but not quite gritty and realistic enough for us. Sorry. Please submit more in future. Well, that's... Oh, do you know what? If you've got a book like that, you'd be happy with that, wouldn't you? So that's good. So, so plenty of encouragement here. Uh, this is Weekend Magazine. Um, the features editor thanks you for your contribution, but regrets that he will not be able to use it in weekend. I'm sure you'll understand that we can only use a, sh a small proportion. All of these letters are very nice, you know. There's absolutely no problem with any of these letters. It's all very encouraging. This is Bella magazine from 15th of March, 1988. I was teaching here. This is, I'm looking at the address on here. I was teaching when I sent this one. Um, thank you so much for your interest in our magazine and for sending me 
Your manuscript entitled Safe and Sound, that was a thriller by the sounds of it. Unfortunately, it's not quite right for publication. I'm returning it to you. So just look at all these letters. And then I, I did get some published. And um, this is a holding up to the camera now, um, a letter that was published. And all these were, I just used to write these to audience. So this was um, Honey Magazine in October 1985. So I was 20. Yeah, 20. I was 20 when I did that. Was I a student? Yeah, I was a student then, yeah. So, um, and, and I just used to write to audience. I used to look at what was on the letters page and just find something that I thought would go well. So um, I got the star letter here. So um, it, it, it was basically, remember this is 85. You've got to put these in the context of the time. Um, and look, I was, I was very, I was into equality, but then, so my letter says, what about a male equivalent of honey? Not being particularly switched on by cars, fishing, football, or even naked women. <laughs> I was forced to flick through the pages of my girlfriend's copy, my girlfriend, now my wife, um, of, of Honey, in my quest for something decent to read. I found much of the magazine fascinating, but unfortunately, I don't look all that good in the clothes featured on your fashion pages, and I'm certainly not a fan of wearing makeup. Um, why can't you publish a magazine with a male slant? Something with a male problem page, male fashion pages, and male interest features. Perhaps then the male population of the world will get the chance to break away from the stereotyped image of men created implicitly by female magazines. Oh my goodness, that's a little bit edgy, isn't it? So, you know, this was just, it was just the kind of stuff that they published in magazines. And here's one in Chat Magazine, March 1986. What did my letter say? Oh, Wimp of the Week is the headline. Your current search for photos of hunky men... <laughs> your current search for photos of hunky men excludes a large proportion of your male readership who suffer from being skinny, yet most of them end up with wives and girlfriends who are quite happy with them. How about catering for women who prefer ribs to muscles? <laughs> and then the answer is, of course, we'd love to see pictures of any wimps out there. Oh... I long for the days in 1986 when I was still a wimp and you can see me ribs. Uh, what else have we got in here? These, these are funny, but I mean, this, you know, I didn't mean any of this. This was just me writing to market. It was an, an early example of, you know, what do they want on the letters page? Let's write a letter and see if they publish it. I also got one in the Sun, and I can't find it here, in the Sun newspaper, um, which was basically... Uh, based on Live Aid, would you believe? It was a, a comment. I can't remember what the comment was, but it was just, you know, stirring up controversy for the sake of it. And I got a, a star letter in the Sun magazine. Um, I can't find that letter offhand, but, um, you know, that was another example of, of just writing to market when, when I was uh, um, at college. So it's really interesting to me to say I was doing this all the time. I was always writing. Um, absolutely fascinating for me. So. Let's get through things. Uh, what else was I doing? When I was at college, I was also magazine editor. Um, so I'm just holding up to the screen now uh, magazines. I used to do this is interesting because my kind of love of writing and I used to do discos when I was a teenager led to sort of radio. So I used to do um, I was, you know, I was always kind of in this journalistic magazine -y sort of fiction. I was always doing that kind of stuff. And when I was editor of the, of the magazine, I started writing stories for the magazine and features. And then I became editor for a year. And we completely changed it. And um, we, we had a lot of fun stuff in there. But we also introduced a lot of um, serious journalism. We, we really sort of sh shook it up. It's, it, you know, I'm still quite proud of that, that work when I was uh, at college. But um, one of the funny things we did, I had a mate who did brilliant pictures. 
Um, he was just brilliant at the illustration. So you know how rubbish I was at my pictures. So he used to illustrate my work. And we, we, if you think, you, you always have to put these things in the context of the time. But Rambo was huge when I was at college. We all loved Rambo. So I, I had a fictional character called Rambi. He was called Rambi. And I still like this cover on this magazine with, with pictures of Rambi in. Um, and it was like, I was also inspired by, I think, Viz at the time. I think Viz was around then. Um, but Rambi was kind of like a student who used to go around with machine guns and weaponry and explode everything when something made him angry. And he used to go around solving all the problems on campus by you know, exploding things with bazookas and things like that. Um, but the, the catchphrase for Rambi is... Vietnam jungle. Oh, sorry, no. The streets of New York. So the Vietnam. No, the Viet. Hang on, I'm getting the wrong way around. Vietnam jungle. The streets of New York. And now Lancaster. That was the. That was the sort of the catchphrase because Lancaster was where I was at college. Um, so, <laughs> so, and then it was like a rag week at university. To Rambi, it was the hell of Vietnam all over again. Don't rag Rambi, or else he'll get you. So it was just, you know. It was very funny. We had a, we, we used to have a campaign to get people to contribute to the magazine. We had we had a poster campaign. We put posters in all the toilets on campus uh, with a picture of a guy sat on the toilet. And the catchphrase was, don't just sit there, contribute to your college magazine. So we were quite innovative in those days. Uh, and obviously very silly, you know, very silly and immature. But um, it, it was all good stuff. So that was the college magazine when I was editor there. Uh, that was great fun. And, and Rambi was the kind of key fictional character at that stage. Um, also, of course, I was doing English literature. So I did theatre studies for a year and I acted as uh, Reverend Samuel Paris in, in The Crucible. So I had a, a, quite a big role. I was rubbish, by the way, absolutely rubbish uh, acting. I, I think by that stage, I realised acting wasn't my thing. I was not, I was too self-conscious to be an actor um, and I, I wasn't going to be an actor. I, you know, I could see that. That my, my kind of, if there was any sort of showbiz in me, it was good to come out through radio and, and podcasts and things like that. It was not good to come out through acting. I do not have, this is not like a, um, a putting yourself down thing, but you, I think you, you do sometimes have to realise that you don't have the talent for something. I do not have the talent to be an actor. That's just it. Uh, so much as I loved it, it was not going to be something I, I could do. So um, at college then, I was kind of, um, I was I, I was teacher training at college. I was doing English literature. I used to do poetry and writing with the kids as well. So, um, and, and if I'm just going to show you my dissertation now. So this is my dissertation, 10,000 words, typewritten and handwritten which was based around a fictional story that I wrote. And this, again, you know, the titles make me cringe. Master Dempster willy-nilly and the marvellous multicoloured rainbow floss machine. And that, frankly, was inspired by Professor Brainstorm and the title chapters that they had. So all these influences are coming out. But effectively, for my dissertation, I wrote a story, a kid's story, which my friend uh, illustrated, did lovely illustrations for which we coloured. I can't find a coloured copy, but I, I've got one in the loft somewhere. Um, and it was I wrote a children's story that was based upon research on what kids liked in stories and popular books. And then I did all sorts of research, which was what my dissertation was. So um, until I wrote The Secret Bunker, my dissertation was the longest and most sustained piece of writing I'd ever done at 10,000 words, which is what we had to do for dissertation then. So this was all handwritten. And my wife, who was then my girlfriend, uh, hand typed that for me on a cronky old typewriter, which just shows how good how good she is and supportive she is uh, over so many years. If you sort of think, you know, my wife has always been there. She was there 
um, when we did the college magazines, we were there on the floor late at night um, with a stapler, had hundreds of pages stapling these together, which is what, you know when you that's how you made magazines in those days. So um, the other thing is have a supportive person around you too, because that my supportive person has been with me uh, since 1983, you know helping me with all of this stuff. Uh, all of it she's been helping me with. Um, uh, if only managing the anxiety and the angst, you know, and the worry that goes with it. Um, this is how I thought you did copyright in those days. I sent a copy of Dempster Willy to myself in the post. So I got a, um, a franked, I've got a franked version of it, um, you know, as evidence just to show, to show that it was mine on a certain date. Um, so that was the biggest sustained work I did at college. And then, um, I do have a sort of collection of stories that you know, I just kind of, I'm holding these up to the, I just kind of lose the track really of, of what I did and when, but I got, I just got loads of stories here. Um, and, and, and I just can't remember when I did them. I'm sure some of these, there's one here called Campus by James Chase. James Hadley Chase, you see how I used to use the words? I never used to put my name on it, but I was writing all sorts of stuff during this time, but never, you know, never with any kind of intention to be an author, um, you know, nothing like that. Then I became a teacher, so I graduated from college, became a teacher. Uh, it put me off reading, so I used to sort of read with ki the kids, and I used to have lots of kids' books around, and I used to get authors in, anything that was, um, I used to write plays, um, you know, with the kids, for them to do in assemblies and um this is i used to be at a school called skirt which is knocked down now but i used to be involved in all the poetry anthologies with the kids but really as a teacher i was kind of helping other people i wasn't really so much doing the work i guess uh, all the time i was a teacher so I, I was hopefully infusing other children um i used to be i, used to, I was a really bullshit teacher um, i used to um it was interesting reading that letter about um you know, me talking about equal rights back in the 80s. When I was a teacher, one of the things I did as a teacher, it was really controversial at the time, you know, this is back in the back in the 80s, is one of my perceptions as a teacher was that all the girls would be cowering at the edges of the playground and, and the boys would be kicking footballs around and everybody would be trying to avoid getting kicked by the footballs. And I, controversially as a young teacher, um, said to the head teacher, this isn't acceptable. The, share the playground is a shared space. So the girls should have, you know, we should divide the, the playground up so that people have equal space. And I, I changed it at that school so that the girls had days where they could, you know, they could do, do, just play their games. They had the whole playground, didn't have to worry about footballs at all. And you can imagine, I had all the support of the women teachers, and we had quite a, a, a sort of traditional male head, and you could almost feel him spin <laughs> choking on his words as he had to agree to it, because I, I got all my top juniors to conspire. And, um, you know, we did all the kind of, we did it all democratically and everything like that. And my parting gift to that school was to allow the girls to have equal access to the playground. Something I still feel really strong about, actually, in playgrounds. Um, and, and so that was one of the things I did as a teacher. The, the, the other thing was, um, I, uh, as a child, I used to hate reading books. You know, these reading schemes where you've got to go next book, next book, plod, plod, plod. And I believe, and I did this with my own kids, you know, kids find their own way into reading. And I passionately believe that you've got to read stuff that you love. It's why I stopped reading when I did English literature, because I was having to read stuff that I didn't love. And the surest way, this is my, this is me editorialising, this is my belief uh, is that kids, you know, kids need to find a way into reading. And if they can find any way into reading, 
that that love will grow and they will find things that they love to read and then they're off and once they read they're off they can read anything and access anything and you'll often hear you know parents stopping boys reading books about war and castles and saying oh he should be reading something else or you know if girls are reading you know princess books oh, i want them to read something else but i've always sort of felt that kids need to just read and read and you just need to keep throwing books at them just throw throw just make sure they've got loads of books all the time my kids had books all over the place when they were kids so that they could find what they love themselves. And when they find what they love, they will become passionate, lifelong readers. That's that's what I believe as a teacher, you know, as, and having gone through it myself. And that's what switched me off reading. So I went through a, a bit of a, you know, I'm not reading anything kind of period. Uh, and then and then I kind of uh, went to work for the BBC. And I was always kind of creating at the BBC. I was writing scripts. I was kind of writing stories. We used to write two to three minute reports. I also did documentaries that were an hour long. Those were stories, but they were factual stories. They had to have a beginning, middle and end. They had to have a script. You know, they had to they had to have pace. So for years in radio, I was telling stories, writing stories constantly, working against deadlines, very, very tight deadlines sometimes in, in radio. But I never thought of it as as writing, never really thought of it as writing. And then the thing that sort of brought me back to this was um, I saw in the paper this book. It was a Richard and Judy book, if I remember rightly. And it's Tell No One by Harlan Coburn. I don't think it had that cover on at the time. But I remember reading the newspaper and it had a newspaper advert for this book. And it was Book of the Week or whatever it was. And I loved the title. You know, when you read a title, you see a cover and, it, and you just think, I got to read that book. That's so perfect for me. I got to read that book. So I was reading books during this time. But, uh, you know, I, I used to read um, Tony Parsons. Um, I used to, I used to read a lot of kind of guy, modern guy, lovey story books, uh, not lo relationship books. I used to read a lot of lo relationship books. I used to love reading, um, you know, people's books about people, politicians and stars and things like that. But I hadn't really sort of found my thing, I guess. But when I saw this book, I went out and bought it, Tell No One by Harlan Coburn, and I blooming loved it. And it put me right back to that place where I was with Edie Blyton when I was writing as a teenager um, with James Hadley Chase. It brought me back to thrillers, that book. And so I was back into an author. Uh, I couldn't stop reading Harlan Coburn. I was buying them left, right and centre. He's written loads of them. He had loads of back catalogue. I was reading those. And from Harlan Coburn, I found Linwood Barclay much in the same way. I saw an advert. I love the covers. This is exactly what I love. So I was reading loads of Linwood Barclays. And that brought me back to thrillers, loving thrillers, psychological thrillers and all of that sort of thing. So that was a very important book when I was at work. But, you know, like everything, I had kids. I was immersed in work. I had to bring the money in. When my wife stopped working, you know, we were harder up because she stopped working. Our choice was that she would stay and, and stay with the kids uh, and not go to work. So my wife didn't work while the kids uh, were young for many years. Uh, so I was it. I had to go out and, you know, move up in the BBC and take more senior positions um, to cover that. And, and it just became kids and work for a long time. You know, there's not a lot of space in there. Um, for doing much else and then as the kids got older and I found the internet at the BBC and started to play around with doing things on my own um, I started to create a lot of digital products and I created lots of um, books I, uh, lots of how-to books so one of the some of the first products I wrote were digital how-to books uh, how to create a sales funnel 
uh, how to make money on ClickBank, which was a big marketplace then. So that that brought me back to writing. And these were sort of 5,000, 10,000 words books, and I had no trouble writing them, of course, because we were now on computers and, and I had all the geeky skills that I needed to do this. So I sold about five or six of those books, and they were part of training programs and products, and I was just banging these things out. Now, after that, we moved to this book, which is a book called Total Marketing Success. This was a, a book that I created with a uh, internet marketing friend, Phil Turner. So Phil and I met in a mastermind group. I, don't, do I forget how many years ago it was now, five, six, seven years ago. I can't remember when. Um, but Phil and I went on to work together and we created a, it was a social media marketing uh, product and it was high ticket. It was over a thousand pounds and we were trying to sort of add value to the package. And because we'd both been internet marketers, we decided to gather together transcripts of interviews that we've both done in the past. We, we decided that we've both got enough interviews that we'd done that we could get transcriptions of. And then we, we compiled them in this book and we put some adverts in it. We, we did a forward, um, you know, did the blurb. What else have we done in here? But it was a pretty easy book to create. And then I think, if I remember right, it was Phil's auntie, I think it was. or I think it was his auntie. She proofread it for us. And at the time, Phil was doing a lot of work with non-fiction authors. So he was working with them. And he had this technique where he would work with them over a day and he, he'd structured lots of questions. So, and he would record it and then get it transcribed. And the way he worked with them is he would get a book out of them in a day. He would get it proofread and formatted and put a cover on it. So and then sort of charge them for it. So this was no problem at all for Phil. He knew exactly what he was doing with this. He's got a barcode on ISBN. He knew all of this stuff uh, before I ever did. And so this was the first book we, we ever produced. We only um, had it as a sort of, you know, print on demand kind of thing. We just um, printed as many as we needed for the for the project that we were doing. It was never something that was supposed to go on general sale. So it, it came and went. But we turned it around in a very short amount of time. Um, we, were, we were working really hard on it. So I, it it was weeks it wasn't months it wasn't even months it was it was a week maybe even putting the book together it wouldn't have been out in a week but it was pulled together extremely quickly but that was the that's what I'd done when I was still internet marketing and it's a it's a good sort of thick book how many pages has it got 264 pages and it's nicely done you know it looks it still looks good nothing wrong with it um, but it's not for sale anymore and um, it's probably hugely uh, dated now but it was uh, it was fine it's a good little book and it came out of nothing it came out of content and material that we both already had so actually that will have a publication date in it will it has it got a year yeah 2013 so that's five years old that so that pretty well brings us up to, to date doesn't it because that if that's 2013 i started writing in 2014 so that pretty well brings us up to date so at that point uh, you know I was writing I wasn't really doing creative writing at that time but I was producing non-fiction stuff and I had no problem doing that at all and in when I was an internet marketer those books were pdf files they weren't physical files they were pdf files and again if you've listened to my diaries before I've told you that I when I was an internet marketer I heard about the Amazon gold rush I heard that people were making a fortune on it and I used something called PLR, private label rights material in internet marketing. People write uh, books, usually non-fiction books about how to. And if you buy the rights for them, you can put your own name on it and claim it as your own. And so when I heard about the Amazon Gold Rush, I published a few books like that on Amazon. They didn't sell anything. I don't think I'm sure they didn't sell anything. And within a very short amount of time, Amazon was on this and they blocked us all. And so I've got um, two books without my proper name on 
disabled or blocked within my Amazon interface. They're still there um, because that was just me trying it beforehand. Uh, then we went to this book, which was a legitimate book. Then I kind of, I think when we finished this project and I had the software built around it, that was the time when I was kind of done with internet marketing, really. I'd, I'd kind of had enough of it. You know, you know when you just, you just do so much work for things and you don't really, it doesn't really move you very further forward. And I just had enough of internet marketing at that stage. So, of course, I still do it, but I'd had enough of that being my living because I think I'd created so many products at that stage and then you would make money from the products and, and sometimes the money was, was good and then you were on to your next product. And I thought, I don't want to be doing this for the rest of my life, coming up with a product every every three months. And and I wanted to move, you know, I was ready in the market, if you want, to move to something that had longevity, that was more evergreen. So enter then this. This is the last stage on my list. This was a competition. Now, I was doing a lot of work, corporate work at that time. And I, you know, as you know, I have contracts and things like that. And I was doing a lot of corporate training at that time. And um, it was only be good money for a day's work. And then this this contract came up and um, I went for the contract, but I bid too high for it. Uh, I bid I bid at my corporate levels. So it, and, I, and I blew myself out of the market. So I expected to start this contract in, in January or whatever it was of 2000 and whatever it was, 14. It must be 14, I think. And and I didn't get the contract and I, I wasn't I didn't want to do any Internet marketing then. And I sort of found myself without this contract, without a whole load of work and thinking, oh, I've got a bit of time on my hands at the moment. And then enter this. So this is a chicken house competition. So chicken house is about kids books and it's in a magazine. I don't even know where I saw it. I don't think it's a writing magazine, but I've still got the clipping. And it says, can you write a story children will love? If you have an original voice, fresh ideas and a story to tell for children 7 to 18, then enter the Times Chicken House competition. So um, I had a look at that. I don't know even whether that's the original one, actually. I don't think that is the original one, but that, that's what Chicken House is. And originally, I I think I'd seen it. I'd sent it to my wife, to my oldest child, and to my sister, all of whom were talking about, you know, with these people who talked about writing books for years and never have. Um, and so I said, this might be interesting. This might be the opportunity you need to get writing. So when I had all this time on my hands, I thought, um, well, I, maybe I ought to do that. And then I'd had this idea based around the secret bunker. I'd been to the bunker a couple of years previously, so I didn't go to the bunker and have a story idea. I, this happened some time after I went to the secret bunker. That You know, the kids were quite tiny when we went to the secret bunker. And so the two things married, and I had to submit the first 5,000 words for this. So I, I, I did my, my 5,000 words, and uh, here's, the, here's the receipts for that entry. And it's it's marked. It was received the sixteenth of the tenth, uh, two thousand and fourteen. So I, I know I'm, I'm getting my time scales. I, I know I'm getting my time scales a little bit mixed up here, um, because I you know I can't quite remember when I, when I did the writing and things like that. But the the, the sequence is correct. So I did the first five thousand words. I submitted it to the competition, and thought, oh, that's it. Then I read the. You know, when you're sort of thinking, oh, that, I ought to be hearing about that competition soon. And then I, I read the rules properly, which, you know, I, I never read everything properly. And found that if I did get selected or shortlisted, I was supposed to have the book written. So I sat down and finished writing the books. And that's kind of where the Secret Bunker trilogy came from. That was written on a Word document. But I just want to show you this because this is where my kind of story begins and ends. 
what you've just heard about in this video is the steps that it took me to get to this. And this is the first physical iteration of a fiction book that I wrote. So it's the wrong size. Um, I make my books, is it five by seven, five by eight? I think my normal books are. So I've got a sticker on the back of it, which says this is the first ever paperback proof order uh, of The Secret Bunker, and it was the wrong size. So I prefer to proofread on paper. I find it very hard to proof off a screen. So I'd written the story in Word, and then I'd seen that I could just upload the file to create space. So, uh, and I got the sizes wrong first time. So all this was is it was me. I found a, a, a photograph on one of the photo sites that just kind of reflected what went on in the secret bunker. This is a standard create space titling on here. I wrote some blurb on the back, which frankly was, it was probably just cut and pasted from what I sent uh, to Chicken House as the synopsis. And then in here, you've just got the, the, the basic story. And you'll see here that, um, you probably can't see it on the screen, but as I'm holding it up, um, in, in this, book this is how I did my first proofing in that I did it just uh, with biro and pencil marking things and you'll also see um, you, you can't see it on the screen but I'll, I'll tell you what's in it in each of the scenes I've had to go through this and mark point of view there's all sorts of um, notes here to say whose point of view is this and all sorts of notes about continuity um, what tense I'm using, because I had terrible trouble with all of this when I started. I got the tenses all over the place. I got point of view all over the place. I, I really did struggle with this first one, even though the story came out, you know, pretty, um, pretty straight as it as it. I stuck to the story pretty well. Um, I I had awful trouble with tense and point of view. So all through this book, it's littered with my notes. But this was literally the first iteration of the secret bunker. This is what I used to proof it and to get the first um, copies out. And then I, I was probably talking about this. I did um, some self-publishing courses um, through through corporate, and that's where I met Helen, who is my proofreader. Um, I'd had a, a bad experience with uh, first um, my first attempt at finding an editor, and I was talking about that at this talk that I was doing locally, and Helen Fazar was in the audience, and she contacted me afterwards. She liked the sound of the books that I was writing, and then she, she came in and she started to edit the books and then and then we were kind of on this proper footing you can't you come in at that stage because that's where I start doing the diaries and talking about this process so I bumbled around for a little while um you know trying to get these books out learning my process finding out how to work but this was the first this was me writing properly with proper writing aspirations to self-publish to get it out there and to start selling my books fiction books on my own this is where you come in on the diaries and um, so if you want to go and you know pick up the story listen to the diaries and you can hear how I then started writing publishing and selling these books and how I've now at the time of recording this video got to having written my 15th fiction title but that's it you know it's a long a long journey it was fascinating for me and I was thinking about what I could do for this 250th episode and I was thinking mm, my path to publication that would be really interesting I find it a really interesting exercise to have gone through listing all the things that have got me to where I am now which is somebody who is quite happily writing enjoying fiction and actually taking something that I had from well, the first incarnation of it was, I'm just trying to find, I've got so many pieces of paper here now, the Mr. Plumber, Mr. Apple books. That was the first, if you want, statement of intent on my part 
that I wanted to write and publish. That was at nine, and it took me till probably 49 until we were getting to this kind of stage, 49.50, till we got to this stage, 40 years later, until we actually got something that, that was, you know, something that I could sell and something that was acceptable to, to put on the market at that stage. So, you know, it's quite interesting to look back at your writing history and to consider that for yourself. I'm really surprised at actually how it feels like my whole kind of life has led to this, but I didn't realise it. Everything I've done has led to this. It's it's met at this point. Everything I've done in my career and my life has met at this point. And writing now seems to be the the next thing, the obvious conclusion to all of that experience. And who knows, there might be something else uh, overriding, overarching that I find uh, at the end of a, of a point further in the distance. But at the moment, it's very definitely um, writing. And 40 years, 40 years? Yeah, 40 years plus of my life have been geared um, towards, it's about 45 now, isn't it? 45 years? How old am I? 53. Hang on, I'm getting my arithmetic wrong. 53. 42 years of my life. Is that right? <laughs> Who knows? You get the gist. Quite a long time has been aimed at, um, at, at doing this writing. So I'll put the list of 20 things on the show notes but you know i hope you find that uh, interesting and who knows what the next 20 things will be <laughs> and who knows where it will lead hey this is john lee dumas from eo fire and you're listening to self-publishing journeys with your show host paul teague it's the must listen weekly podcast for all indie authors who are prepared to ignite Thank you very much for listening to this week's podcast diary. It's a real long one this week, about an hour and a half, maybe over. I'm not quite sure what the final time will be. So you've got real grit if you listened all the way through. Please do check out the show notes for this week because there's a lot of extra stuff on the show notes, a lot of extra photographs on the show notes this week, just to illustrate the, the bit that you've just heard about my kind of 20 things that led to publication. I hope you enjoyed that special 250th episode. Uh, Next week, coming up on Monday, my guest is going to be Julie Stock. Julie's been connected with the podcast for a long time. She connected with me a long time ago. Um, She writes, um, you know, contemporary romance novels, doing very well. She's just had a big promo on in the past week when I'm recording this. So we're talking about her path to publication. Uh, It's it's, a really interesting path to publication, some of the things she's doing, um, you know, the usual missteps, the things that went right, the things that went wrong. Really interesting interview. It was really, it's very good for me because I've met so many of the guests that I'm interviewing now on this podcast. Uh, I've met them initially through Twitter because they've connected to me through the podcast. We've got chatting. I've seen that they're writing or they've published for the first time. And then I've said, oh, you know, it's high time you came on the interview. And that's where we are with Judy. Judy's got a few books behind her, actually. She's, she's, got, she's got a good stock of books now. But it's really great when you get people on the podcast that you kind of met through the podcast and through Twitter. So that's coming up on Monday. That'll be episode 126 of the Self-Publishing Journeys podcast. And that's being released on Monday, the 5th of November, 2018. And of course, I'll have another briefer diary for you next Saturday. In the meantime, I hope you have a fabulous week of writing. Bye-bye for now. Thanks for listening to Paul's Podcast Diary. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed to hear next week's update and find out how many words get produced over the next seven days. Until then, we hope you have a great week of writing.